and a very warm welcome back to the Asset Allocator podcast. Uh, I'm Dave Baxter, and today with us we have Asset Allocator's own David Thorpe. And I'm pleased to say we're also joined by James Burns, uh, James's managing partner for investment management at Evelyn Partners. So, James, thank you for joining us. It's been to to use your uh, euphemism, I suppose, an understatement, quite quite an interesting year in markets and in terms of allocation calls. Um, but I'm quite interested looking at some, um, say we discuss you, you know, one of the ranges you work on is the the active portfolio range. You seem to have taken some fairly kind of um, specific bets recently, um, some quite granular kind of fund exposures. And perhaps it'd be interesting to kind of go into those and, you know, are you now, do you think you're now in a place where you can have enough conviction in an idea? You know, people I think were trying to perhaps just tread water earlier this year and not really kind of making any real, you know, high conviction uh, positions. Um, yeah, as you, as you say, it has been a um, pretty interesting uh, year today, and it has been very difficult to to make any sort of a positive ground in in virtually all asset classes, bar a few. Um, and you know, I, I I probably say you know we 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 always try to have conviction in the decisions within the um, the portfolios, but there's there's a certain times when it is it's harder to do that, and I think we've we're definitely in that period. And so, you know, as you say, we have made some changes to the portfolios um, in the first half of the year, um, but I wouldn't necessarily say we've made you know hugely high conviction positions because um, there's still so much uncertainty out there, um, you know, primarily regarding inflation and interest rates, um, that you know things could change you know relatively quickly. But you do you do have some fairly kind of granular plays, don't you? Kind of single country funds and emerging markets, perhaps as an area where you seem uh, perhaps more bullish than some other kind of asset allocators. Yeah, I mean, I think the the, the you know the particularly in our, our higher risk models, um, that's partially a, a function of the asset allocation framework that this um, this range works off. Um, so the distribution technology uh, framework, which is you know, over the almost 10 years now, maybe 10 years next month, we've been running this range. Um, they've always had a significant allocation to emerging markets in Asia, um, particularly in the higher risk ranges. And that sort of um, has been a, a decent differentiator between us and, and some of our, our competitors, perhaps. Um, and that hasn't necessarily, you know, worked fantastically well for the last couple of years. Um, but over the piece, it's uh it has um, it has worked out pretty well and where we have particularly in the higher end risk end of the range there is this significant allocation to asian at em we have taken um some you know country specific uh calls you know to just add some you know, sort of diversification um and you know accessing we think what we think are some pretty pretty good managers um, and I guess the most obvious one is is Fidelity China Special Situations, the the long-standing large and liquid investment trust. Um, and I think we felt that if you look at EM and Asia as one pot, you know China is a significant portion of that, and is only going to get bigger um, over the next uh, ten years plus. And while lots of our generalist managers. 
do have you know significant exposure there. We just felt having a um, a, a specific Chinese manager made absolute sense, particularly uh, this vehicle. You know, with its closed end structure, it allows Dale Nichols, the manager, to have a you know much higher allocation to less liquid mid cap stocks in China than perhaps other generalist open ended managers might not have. And we just felt it was offering something slightly different for these much more growth-focused portfolios. Uh, James, uh, on uh, you, you've spoken there on the, the sort of granular exposures, but even in a sort of bigger picture sense, I think certainly in the in the balanced um, type portfolio that that you run, your your equity exposure is is uh, is around seventy percent, and obviously that's a lot higher than many of your peers. Is that also a function of the? Asset allocation framework, or is that a, a particular call in in relation to where you see markets right now? No, I think in our in our sort of middle of the range, you know, our um, balanced income and balanced growth models, we are you know only fractionally overweight that sort of long term framework, um, at sort of sixty five percent and and seventy seven percent. So, not doing anything you know particularly. Um, outlandish there it's a pretty you know equal weight we've got in that to equity so that, that is more a reflection of the of the asset allocation framework you know we have over the last couple of years um, pretty consistently trimmed our equity exposure as it's got ahead of the um, sort of the allocation uh, from the from the benchmark and just you know, as markets have been strong, we've, we've generally taken profits to make sure we never got too too ahead of ourselves in terms of the equity exposure. So, um, you know, that may be higher than some of our peers, but I don't think it's possibly you know significantly higher when you look at the sort of the various risk profiles we've got in the uh, across the range there. And how much you mentioned the kind of asset allocation framework, um, and you know, I remember speaking in the past to some allocators who use similar systems and occasionally have had kind of frustrations because they felt almost bound to certain ranges and, you know, certain um, exposures. How much kind of flexibility do you have to kind of, you know, move one way or another? Yeah, when we when we launched this um, in September 12, we had exactly that discussion is that, you know, this, this framework is great. And the important thing for um, clients in this is they, they get a, a DT rated three four five six seven eight, um, and that's the most important thing. What you don't want is us doing something completely different and finding that a client who's signed up to a, a DT four ends up with a, a DT six rating. So you know we we obviously look at the framework carefully, but from day one we've always given ourselves a degree of uh, leeway um, at the asset class level to make some calls. And we've generally said the larger of 3% absolute or 15% relative in a, in a particular bucket. And, you know, so if you're looking at, you know, an allocation to say Japan at 10%, we could go between seven and 13% really. So actually, you know, it doesn't sound like a lot, but actually you can make some pretty significant calls there um, over time. And, you know, one of the biggest ones we've had pretty much for the entire decade has been a an almost maximum underweight to to government bonds uh which you know has has generally proved to be a, a pretty good call compared to other asset classes and particularly this year where you know traditional government bonds haven't really offered a 
much much protection at all. So I think the important thing is that you know we've we've got this framework and we've got plenty of leeway to make some calls, but not the extent that's going to um, have a a bad outcome for for the investors in the in the service. In the course of this year, where we've had so much dislocation in markets, do you, um, has that thrown up opportunities in, in valuation terms that maybe weren't there for 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 the previous few years when markets were were generally roaring ahead? That's that's absolutely spot on, and um, our most sort of recent asset allocation group meeting, or the last couple, in fact, we have been looking at more traditional government bonds. And you know, as I say, we've been underweight these for since day one of this service, but they're getting to the point now where they may well be offering some sort of protection which they weren't offering historically, and therefore having some, you know, hedged US treasuries um, may well be something that we we put into the portfolio as our next rebalance, because having had a torrid time, they are now. You know, potentially offering some uh, diversification benefits um, that they weren't offering certainly this year and um, perhaps the last couple of years. So, you know, that is that is potentially interesting. In terms of markets, it's hard to say that anything has you know looked particularly interesting on its own. It's you know, growth as a style has obviously struggled. So, you know, growth probably looks quite interesting. But that could be in the US, the J- Japan, whatever. So it's possibly less specific there at the minute in terms of what we do. I mean, broadly, our sort of house thinking is to be at least benchmark allocation to equities for the time being. Um, we'd actually looked at it in the summer, in the early summer, when the market was sort of, you know, with hindsight close to its, its bottom. We were looking at, increasing our allocations to any portfolios where the equity content had come down beneath benchmark by virtue of performance just to make sure it's back up towards benchmarks so that you know any rebound we thought might happen you'd be able to fully participate in that so you know as we entered that we were, in the NPS we were probably already at that point so we didn't need to feel need to do much but I guess the next question will be you know how long do we see the the rebound in equities continuing do we want to? I mean, we've basically been overweight equities for ten years now in this in this NPS, and at some point, maybe we may want to to reverse that, but that's probably not today. But certainly up for discussion. So there's there's certainly things to look at where opportunities arisen in the fixed income space, and it depends on how you know how much we feel markets have already baked in inflation and interest rate rises. Uh, particularly in the US at uh, current levels before we make any decision in terms of equities there. But but I suspect most of the conversations we have will be around equity content within those allocations as opposed to the actual absolute allocations themselves, if that makes sense. You've touched on the equities and, and bonds there. How do you think about alternatives? I, I know that David Baxter and I, whenever we, we speak to, to your peers, um, they're all telling us that alternatives are, are on the way up, uh, like they've discovered some new uh, alchemy. How, how do you think about it? They have been the one good thing to have had in portfolios this year. And um, the we've hopefully not discovered them in the last six months. We've had them in the portfolios for um, 
a good number of years. And, you know, we made some good allocation calls six, seven years ago within the, the alternatives pot, which have really borne fruit in the last two or three years for us. And we, we talked about um, a year or so ago that we may increase the allocation to alternatives and particularly absolute return hedge fund type vehicles because in a world where government bonds were offering you absolutely zero and equity markets have been on a, sort of on a 12-year tear, if you could find an absolute return fund that might do 4 or 5% a year for the next five years, that may, with hindsight, have been absolutely fantastic because bonds may not have done that. Now, obviously, we didn't expect what happened this year to happen, and I wish we'd actually you know, started to make that move earlier because if the sort of Russian invasion hadn't happened, we would have put have had more time to make that steady rotation into, into the asset class. But obviously things happen very quickly. But just going back to, you know, I said about a few years ago when we, we introduced um, the listed hedge fund BH Macro into the portfolios. And this is something we'd known for years, but it, you know, like a lot of macro funds, it had a really tough few years post quantitative easing coming in um, after the financial crisis. A lot of these these macro hedge funds had no nothing to get their their teeth into. They need volatility in markets, and it had been a pretty benign environment. And I think it was sort of 2015, 16. We were looking at these funds and thinking, well, you know, we can see a time in the, in the next couple of years where you're going to start seeing interest rates rising in in the US. You might get some diver, you know, um, divergence across the globe in terms of interest rates and expectations, etc. And we should maybe start to have, you know, a macro hedge fund like BH Macro in there. And it didn't do anything for the first couple of years. And we had some quite tough decisions as a, the three of us that run this range about what we should do with it. And we eventually, you know, we held our conviction. And, you know, come 2020, when, you know, we had the COVID sell-off and the volatility that came from that, this fund, like most macro funds, had an absolute field day. Um, and we made some fantastic money in that, not only because it had gone, it was a discount of asset value and it went to a premium, but they also had strong NEV growth. And it was like, well, we've done well out of this. Um, we trimmed it last summer. There was a sort of a corporate action there, but we held it as a position. And again, this year, it's come up trumps versus, I think, I think the NAS up about 15, 16% this year. And it's done everything we want in the portfolio. So, very long answer to your question. You know, alternatives have been a part of these portfolios for a long time and they have been a um a, a, cru- a crucial part of adding diversification particularly in the lower risk portfolios where um you need to have some some stabilizers and, and bonds just weren't going to offer you that at the start of this year you mentioned uh, i suppose perhaps kind of macro is a, a bigger part of people's thinking very recently fairly recently um one thing that interests me in your kind of portfolio literature is um i suppose like some other kind of managers you partly reference inflation when it comes to your kind of returns how do you kind of view those targets when we do end up in this kind of situation where inflation is at 40 year highs i mean there must be quite a difficult balancing act between that original objective and then trying not to be sort of dragged into you know taking on unnecessary levels of risk i mean i think i think the 
the this range does not have any inflation targets as such. It's, it's sort of other other stuff we've got. But you know, the, the the point still holds valid for everything is that you know clients investing in the markets want to you know preserve or or or, or grow their assets um, in line or above inflation. Otherwise, there's not much point in not not much point in investing really. And um, yeah, it does become a lot harder if you've got in, in inflation targets of you know one percent above inflation and inflation goes to twelve percent at a time when markets are collapsing. But um, I think you have to look at those inflation sort of you know desires over a three to five year view, um, as opposed to you know the short sharp shock that we've seen this year. I mean, our you know house view, like I guess many of the markets, may be that you know in, inflation will subside in the next six months. Now, it may not come down um, to, to beneath, you know, 4%, but it, it'll still be, it'll be there. But I think it'll be more more manageable, um, hopefully, A, from the point of view of everyone's uh, um, ability to to pay for their, their living, et cetera, but also from a portfolio management and returns point of view. And I think if it, if it gets down to, you know, 4 or 5%, it's still significantly above where we've been uh, for the last, you know, 15, 20 years. Um, but it does give you a, you know, a fighting chance for the portfolio manager to to make returns above that, whether it's from, you know, absolute return funds giving you 5 6% if they can, or more defensive holdings, which have got an income, you know, that comes through on a regular basis, which helps you with that, you know, ease into that target you're trying to be, basically. Um, and I think that leads on to what I said earlier. It's not so much about, how much we have in equities at the moment it's just you know what do you have in that and you know we've you know when we rebalanced the portfolios in may you know across the range we we added significantly to our position in jp morgan us equity income which obviously is a fund more focused on income producing companies more defensive companies which might do better i'm not saying they're going to be you know it's a one-way ticket but they might do better than than others um, in the in the next eighteen months or so, and it's it's that sort of thing where you want just you know tilting portfolios to where we think will be better areas to be invested in um, over the next couple of years. That's interesting about JP Morgan US equity income because I think on our own asset allocator uh, databases, it's the most widely held or or one of the most widely held funds among among um dfms uh, out there so it's it's interesting to hear that you're uh, that, that you're backing that one well yeah, i'm not saying we were late to the party we already held it but uh yeah so, but it is it's it's a it's a it's a different vehicle to a lot of the growth vehicles out there um and you know the, the track record is is solid and therefore you know, this could be a, a, a time for it to really you know to shine um after a period where you know it will have you know returns with the loot less impressive compared to its um, its growthy peers. Well, lots of um, food for thought there. Very interesting. Uh, but I'm afraid that is uh, all we have time for. So thanks to James for joining us today. And uh, thank you for listening.